Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing well. I am here with Michelle Malkin. Now, she is a syndicated columnist, a senior editor at Conservative Review, the host of the most excellent Michelle Malkin Investigates on CRTV. We'll put the links to all of this below. And, and just in case that wasn't enough, a New York Times bestselling author writing six powerful books, including her most recent sold out, How High-Tech Billionaires and Bipartisan Beltway Crap Weasels are screwing America's best and brightest workers. You can find her at Michelle Malkin, M-A-L-K-I-N.com and CRTV.com. Michelle, how are you doing today? Good. Thank you so much for having me, Stefan. It is truly a pleasure to speak with you, although what we're talking about is rather horrific today. It is horrific. And of course, out of the ashes of a potential miscarriage of justice, we hope to bring some gleaming principles forth and rescue common law from the mob. So we're going to be uh, talking uh, tonight about Daniel Hosclaw. Now, you have been working on this for quite some time, and you have uh, a two-part series uh, on CRTV.com. But I wanted to start with some of the general principles before we go into the details of the case, because there are so many people who have observed this growing tendency of mob fear, of rioting, of cities being burned to the ground, influencing or potentially influencing court decisions, jury decisions, decisions to pursue a prosecution and reasonable doubt seems to be being plowed under at least to some degree uh, by fear of of mob violence, of, of mob retaliation. This started in Ferguson, although of course it occurred uh, in the 60s, it occurred uh, in the 90s in Los Angeles after the Rodney King acquittals and so on. How have you been viewing what's going on in the American legal system and some of the outside pressures being brought to bear on it? Well, it's frightening because it undermines the very principle um, and the constitutional foundations of a guarantee for free and fair trials in America. And I think that you can even pull back the lens further and uh, go back to the mob rule of the Salem witch trials. And and it really has been, um, over the course of, of my career, something I've been extremely concerned about. It has to do with not only the culture and the agitation of the social justice mob over the last 20, 30 years, but it also has to do with the degradation of education in America and our school system. And, and at bottom... Stefan, the idea that we are able to inculcate in generations of of children the ability, the cognitive ability to to think for oneself and the courage to act in the face of the mob, the unthinking mob. And uh, I, over the course of my career, I've, I've worked in Los Angeles. I've worked in Seattle. And in both states uh, covered the effect of mob rule on on very highly contentious and inflammatory legal cases. You remember the McMartin child abuse hysteria in California. Well, when I was in Washington state, something very similar happened in the mid to late 1990s in Wenatchee, Washington, where you had overzealous uh, prosecutors and detectives who essentially planted uh, false memories in, in children and very vulnerable victims, targets of these prosecutions, were thrown in jail you know, for essentially life um, until there were people, independent people, who were not 
legally trained, who, who, were, who did not come from the legal system, who saw the truth and acted on it. Um, so that's the context in which I uh, brought my own perspective and lens to the Daniel Holtz call case. And, and you can't solve social problems by overturning the requirements of proof for individual criminal cases. This idea that we can have individuals stand in as proxy for longstanding perceived social injustices is sort of the idea of a scapegoat, you know, like this old idea that the tribe would put all of its evils into one goat, drive it out into the desert, and everything would be better. Each individual case should be stripped free of collective social injustice, of historical problems, and, and viewed on the merits of of its individual case. Because if we're going to start asking people to stand in for the dysfunctions of society as a whole, we end up with no rule of law at all, as far as I can see. Yes, exactly. And then with particular regard to the Daniel Holtzclaw case, you have somebody who was um, held as the symbol of collective guilt and 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 was shoved into this narrative that clearly didn't fit. Somehow he was this uh, law enforcement officer who harkened back to the days of of uh, you know the Ku Klux Klan, and and this guy is somebody who's half Japanese, and 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 everything uh, that was put on his shoulders. Um, had nothing to do with the actual facts and truth of, of the case. And that's what's so entirely disturbing, Stefan. And, and the, the intersection, I think, of two challenges to uh, reasonable doubt and to the very mantra or the basis of a just legal system, which is innocent until proven guilty, the intersection of race and gender. Uh, and underprivileged, of course, seems to be uh, particularly challenging. This idea that has been growing uh, in Western legal systems for the past couple of decades that particularly female accusers of male sexual impropriety or attack or assault or rape must automatically be believed uh, because, you know, they could never make it up, they could never be mistaken, they could never lie, they could never be manipulated, they could never be trying to do the best thing with the best intentions while pursuing the worst uh, individual actions. The idea that women uh, who are... Uh, accusing men of sexual impropriety or assault uh, must somehow be believed and we must throw out standards uh, of proof regarding that. That to me seems particularly uh, dangerous uh, in its foundations, given that the crimes are so horrendous. Yes, it's alarming for a number of reasons. Um, first, we've seen this trend escalate on college campuses. And uh, unfortunately, the Duke lacrosse case or more recently the university of virginia case look like nothing compared to what me may be going on down the line if what happened to daniel holtzclaw becomes something more common which is the pylon you know at least in the cases of of duke and the university of virginia we're only talking about one accuser but now you see the the this insatiable need to build larger and larger cases of uh, of 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 these uh, accusers um, aggregating um, and that certainly is what happened with Daniel Holtzclaw because um, these witch hunters know that they're it's going to be more difficult to get away with just one but oh you know if you've got five or 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 ten then it's much easier to um, level that that uh, case of, of collective guilt against these innocent men. And the argument or the idea that so many protesters seem to have that the injustice has been done, the proof is in the pudding, the proof is in the accusations, 
And therefore, if the individual being charged is not found guilty, we know for sure, 100%, a massive injustice has occurred. Well, then why bother even having a legal system in the first place? Why not just keep people a bunch of pitchforks, a bunch of brands, a bunch of torches, and just let them go to town on anyone who think they, they, they think is guilty? Uh, the whole point of the legal system is we don't know. We don't know. And the point is to try and find out to the best of our ability. But people out there are chanting with signs saying, no justice, no peace. And if he's not convicted, then for sure, a guilty man has gotten away. That's... That is mob rule, and that is a kind of lynching, and that is exactly what we've been trying to get away from as a society uh, since, uh, well, for the last thousand years at least. Yes, and and that's what's frightening. Not only that the social justice machine has perfected uh, those um, demonstrations and that they're at the ready. I mean, we've seen it. Uh, before President Trump came into office and certainly in the ensuing weeks and months. I mean, it it is uh, agitation protest a day um, with these people. And unfortunately, there are too many innocent targets of the social justice mob that are not prepared. Um, and that certainly was, unfortunately, a, uh, one of the hard lessons that Daniel Holtzclaw and his original defense team and his family learned. They had no idea what they were in for. And I think it's one of the things that drives me. This case keeps me up at night, Stefan, and it's the first thing I think about um, in, in the morning because uh, the kinds of things that we're talking about here, the undermining of the entire legal system in, in America, um, could happen to anybody out there, not just law enforcement, not just white men on campuses anybody. Right. And and we'll get into the details in a second. But but on reading it, Michelle, there was this feeling that, that I, I had. Uh, and it was a very, very sort of creepy, spine-tingling sensation. Because you think, of course, if you get caught up in, in an accusation, and anyone can be accused of anything, that, oh, well, you know, uh, there's no physical evidence. And I'm more than willing to cooperate. And the person who's accused me has completely misidentified, misidentified my physical characteristics and blah. And you think, okay, well, that's, that's my security. That's my safety. That is my uh, defense. And then you find out that you might get caught up in a kind of machinery where those things just don't seem to matter at all. Or if you say, well, you know, if the prosecutor openly misleads the jury about, say, DNA evidence and its source, then that would, of course, cause things to get thrown out. And, but you may end up with 263 years prison sentence, even with all of these inconsistencies in what's being brought against you. Yes, it's Kafka plus Orwell plus Alice in Wonderland falling down the rabbit hole on steroids. And, you know, there, there's been more awareness raised over the last 20, 25 years of, of the plight of the wrongfully accused and the wrongfully convicted. Um, but, but there's something unique about the Daniel Holtzclaw case in that um, unfortunately, I think a, a lot of the people who are involved in innocence project type work um, do not find themselves naturally sympathetic to law enforcement officers who are white or half white. And uh, the context in which this case occurred, I think, um, makes it all the more difficult for people who would normally run into the fire um, with regard to these wrongfully accused and wrongfully um, convicted cases. Um, but I would temper that by saying that I have spoken with many, many um, open-minded people over, over the last uh, almost year now 
who I wouldn't have other ex otherwise expected to speak with, you know, someone as as devil horned as myself <laughs> on the right <laughs> side of the aisle. <laughs> this has been redeeming. <laughs> and the last thing before we dive in is I also wanted to mention that um, it's not just the injustice against Daniel that may have potentially occurred, but uh, also, of course, either these um, people have accused him incorrectly. Now, either nothing happened, in which case they're making things up, which is a desperately terrible thing to do, or something happened in that there's still a policeman somewhere out there in Oklahoma City who is continuing to prey upon uh, these these women. If, if this is, And so no matter what has happened, uh, the, the question of his innocence is important because if he does turn out to be innocent, then so many wrongs have been done or could continue to being done if there's still another policeman out there or maybe a security guard or maybe somebody else in uniform or whatever who's continuing to prey upon these women. Having the wrong person in jail is not just terrible for that person and his family and his friends and his loved ones, but also terrible for the other crimes that may be committed while everyone thinks the problem has been solved. Correct. And, and, and that certainly is the case with, 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 with most of, of, of these narratives that play out of the wrongfully accused, that, that it's wrong upon wrong upon wrong piled upon wrong. And so then you have to scrutinize, uh, the people who are in charge of these kinds of investigations and their own cognitive or, um, uh, bias, yeah, confirmation bias in, involved in these cases. And, you know, they're so tunnel visioned about who they're convinced is, uh, the assailant or the rapist or, or, um, uh, or, or the criminal in this case that they, they ignore, um, all sorts of, of exculpatory evidence and other evidence that somebody else might have been involved in might still be on the streets today. Right. So let's start talking about um, the facts uh, at hand. Um, can you help people to understand who may not be aware of this story at all, what has happened? So Daniel Holtzclaw is an, an Oklahoma native, uh, born and raised in Enid, Oklahoma, and uh, is somebody who was incredibly disciplined and hardworking. Um, when he was in high school, he played football for Enid High School and um, wanted to make it in the F NFL. That was his dream job. He is the son of two police officers, um, Eric Holtzclaw, who is still a police officer today in their hometown, and Kumiko Holtzclaw, who is a, a Japanese woman who... Eric met uh, while he was serving overseas. He was in the military, and she also um, served as a law enforcement officer. Uh, Daniel is is one of, of three children. He's the youngest and only boy. He, uh, he has two older sisters, uh, Jenny and Julie. And uh, after high school, he won a football scholarship, and he was a linebacker at Eastern Michigan University. Didn't make it in the draft. That was a huge disappointment. Um, so decided to go into law enforcement like his parents were. He had studied cr criminal justice at, at uh, EMU and joined the police force after you know, going through academy in 2011. Um, quickly made a reputation and a name for himself as somebody who was a, a tough, uh, hardworking cop, like I said. And even the sex crimes detectives who investigated him acknowledged how hardworking a man uh, this man was, and he prided himself on his ability, for example, to patrol solo in the worst part of town, northeast Oklahoma 
city. Um, served a stint on the gang unit, was which was incredibly prestigious, um, given how, how uh, you know quickly he rose in the ranks. And um, and then on a fateful night in in June, uh, 2014, um, pulled over a woman for a traffic stop named Janie Liggins, a 57 year old grandmother in that in that part of town. And then what happened? Uh, and I know that there's some footage that's a little bit too grainy to figure out exactly what happened. It does confirm the traffic stop, uh, but their uh, stories, to put it mildly, diverge from there. Yes, uh, they did. Um, it was very strange. It was two o'clock in the morning. It was the end of his shift. Um, and as I mentioned, he served solo patrols overnight in uh, this dangerous part of town, the worst part of town, crime ridden, a lot of drug dealing, cartels, gangs. And she uh, was going through a very busy intersection and, and swerved, according to Daniel. So he pulled her over. And during a 15-minute traffic stop, which was recorded by surveillance cameras in a very busy and high prominent area with a lot of office buildings, um, like you said, the surveillance video uh, was not close up enough to show, you know, their exact interaction, but it confirmed everything he said in his description of uh, the traffic stop with uh, the sex crime detectives who were in investigating. Um, she said that he uh, forced her per to perform oral sex and uh, during this stop, and he had pulled her over uh, and questioned her, um, asked her to come into the back of, of the vehicle. Remember, he had to worry about his own safety um, and uh, saw an open uh, cup, uh, which he smelled. She said it was Kool-Aid. Uh, he says that he saw a couple of, of uh, bottles of hydrocodone pills, um, but he assessed that, that she was not going to be a, a danger and um, let her let her go after 15 minutes and she turned around you know uh, going in a direct different direction than when she had been headed uh, to go back home he followed for her for a little bit before he peeled off and 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 went home uh, the next day he was he checked in for work and so about 12 hours after this um, alleged uh, sexual assault occurred, he sat down with the detectives for a two-hour interrogation video, all of which is available on YouTube um, thanks to the original defense uh, team investigator, Brian Bates. And that, Stefan, is what convinced me that what I thought about, what I thought I knew about this case was absolutely wrong. Because you watch that video and it's really hard to square the social justice mob narrative that this was a racially motivated predator. And to, to sort of stand on, on, on thin ice, just in terms of motives, uh, he is a very good looking strapping young man, you know, six two, two sixty, um, all muscle. I mean, the man, the man is very disciplined because he works like long shifts and then apparently uh, spends uh, even more time at the gym. Uh, and so he is a, a very good looking, tall, uh, you say alpha kind of guy. The idea that, because the, the alleged, um, uh, well, I guess now it's considered proven the, the, uh, uh oral assault, right? The, the oral sex assault, uh, 
uh, apparently lasted 10 seconds. So to, to me, the and there was no ejaculation. So the idea that this, you know, tall, good-looking guy with a great-looking girlfriend, uh, you know, NFL uh, guy, uh, you know, he's, he's probably had no uh, lack of success with the ladies over the course of his life, that he is going to force uh, a... a um, a grandmother uh, to to perform oral sex on him for ten seconds and risk everything because of that. I you know again it's hard you know if he were some terrible guy, it'd be hard to pin down his motives. But that oh that was one of the things where I went well that that seems like a a not very sensible cost benefit analysis if I can put it as coldly as that. Yes, yes. There there's so many things about the details of 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 how this allegedly transpired as as i mentioned it was a very prominent intersection he had put on his flashers they they were on the whole time you can see it in in uh the surveillance and, video. and cars are going by as well the cars are driving by Correct. so it's, it's not a private area Correct. it's not secluded that's right and not only were they driving by on the street but um you know adjacent to them were these office buildings in a parking lot and there was actually a a, a car that pulled right into the parking lot, you know, just feet from from where they stood. And you know, this is a YouTube, everybody's Facebook living everything culture. If 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 this kind of thing were actually occurring, we would actually see it. Um, and then there's just the whole logistics of of how Jamie Liggins described the the alleged assault occurred. One thing that's interesting at the end of the interrogation video, again, that you can see on YouTube at, at Brian Bates' um, YouTube channel site, is that um, he has to take off his uniform pants to hand them over to the detectives. And it takes a long time to deconstruct the entire uniform. Not only did Janie Liggins um, allege that he just whipped it out, pardon my language, um, but so many of the other accusers, every one of the other accusers, also described what is a highly improbable, in my view, impossible scenario of him just whipping it out when he wore compression underwear that doesn't have a hole in it, where there were stretchers or extenders that extended from the bottom of his shirt to keep it taut underneath his very tight pants. Then the gun belt, then the a protective vest, all, all of that. And, you know, it... It, it's 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 a shame that there there wasn't a, a defense counsel who were more able and in a sense more theatrical to have Daniel stand there and do that for the entire jury so they could see how impossible it was to do what these accusers said he did. Well, and and one of the officers said it's it's tough to even go to the washroom when you're wearing that kind of getup, let alone you know sort of uh, whip out your penis for you know some some instant gratification. And exactly. so the uh, when Daniel was being interrogated or interviewed. I don't know whether you'd call it one or the other, but um, he, he's very calm, very cooperative. Uh, and this is 12 hours after he's supposed to have sexually assaulted three women in, in one day. And he's very much, no, this didn't happen. Yes, you can, you, you can search my apartment. You can search my cell phone. He signed a document. I'll take lie detector tests. Uh, you can take all the DNA that you want. I just want to get this behind me because um, the people who don't know this kind of world and um, I'm ambivalent about my knowledge of it these days, but people who don't know this kind of world uh, don't know that um, the police department in, in this neck of the woods, they will receive uh, a complaint of uh, a sexual impropriety on the part of an officer about once a month. 
and and almost all of them uh, end up being uh, falsified or or withdrawn or retracted or disproven. Uh, it's a way uh, to get back uh, at someone. Again, this doesn't mean that every single one of them is false, but it's important to, to know that this is not an unusual accusation from somebody who's been pulled over by a cop uh, and uh, the majority of them do, do turn out to be false, which, again, the general public might not be aware of. Yes, that's right. And uh, one of the people who pointed this fact of life um, in Oklahoma City law enforcement out was the sex crimes detective uh, who was co-lead in the investigation against Daniel Holsclaw, a woman named Kim Davis. She was quoted in the Oklahoman newspaper uh, after the verdict, um, basically saying that that this is what happens with with, uh, so many of these accusers in in that part of town. Uh, Retaliation. You know, Daniel Holtzclaw was unapologetic about being somebody who was tough on the streets. He he needed to be. I mean, Oklahoma City is, is one of the most crime-ridden, gang-infested in, uh, cities in in the country. And you know, if, if you're not familiar, w- uh, you know, with with American cities, it might sound strange to you. This is flyover country, um, but in, in in fact, they've 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 taken hold there. And um, and and that's not something that that was properly illuminated to the jury uh i i i think um because because kim davis and the prosecutors um essentially plied this narrative the jury to the jury that there was no motive they said it over and over again there was no motive for these women to lie when they know in their own daily lives that these people lie all the time. So the accusation of um, forced oral uh, sex, the accusation, uh, he touched her phone um, and and he had his hands on, on the roof uh, of his car. Uh, no, no fingerprints on the roof of the car, no DNA or fingerprints on her phone. Uh, and of course, an exam of her mouth um, where they looked for DNA, uh, found no sperm, no seminal fluid, no um, DNA from uh, Daniel uh, in around this uh, woman's mouth. And that's interesting because in the interview, you can clearly see the detective saying, so, you know, we, we can find pre-ejaculate, we can find seminal fluid, we can find DNA, uh, even if you didn't ejaculate. I can't believe we're talking about this topic, but it is important for for the sort of facts of, of the case. Uh, so they're saying that they can find all of these things if they're there. But then when they don't find any of these things, it doesn't seem to affect their decision to go forward. Exactly, and and that is the tunnel vision, the 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 you know the confirmation bias, adult way in which uh, they plowed forward anyway. Um, on CRTV in my two part series, I had sat down with Detective Kim Davis as well as her co co lead, her partner in this investigation, um, Rocky Gregory, and they always had an explanation for everything that did not redound uh, to their benefit and the accuser's benefit and and it was it, it was um it was very jarring um, for me uh, to sit down with them and ask them time and time again so the sexual assault uh, nurse examination test came up empty the extensive um, dusting for print, uh, for fingerprints as well as DNA evidence all over his car. Nothing, nothing supported Janie Ligon's story. Everything 
um, confirmed what Daniel had told them. And then when they explained things away, for example, um, when I asked about the, the lack of fingerprints or, or any kind of forensic evidence on the car, Kim Davis said, well, his car was dirty. <laughs> as if, no, the inside as if, of his car. The inside yes, of it. That this was like, okay, he touched, he touched the roof, so where were the fingerprints? And they say, well, the inside of the car was dirty. And it's like, but that's not where the fingerprints were supposed to happen. The fingerprints were on the roof of the car. So what does it matter what the inside of the car is? It doesn't matter at all, and 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 yet, you know, after after sitting with these people for two hours, not only were they absolutely still convinced that Janie Liggins was telling the truth, but even the the, the known liars, uh, the convicted felons among their um, pool of accusers that they procured, and I use that word because that's exactly how all of the rest of them cascaded absolutely 100% convinced that all of these women uh, were telling the truth, even when the jury rejected the cases of five of the 13 um, who, who were part of the pileup. And the detectives did not, as you mentioned, they didn't take his uh, underwear, which would be right. uh, important. They didn't uh, issue a search warrant for his own personal car, for his home, or for his phone to, to examine uh, information or, or data or, or facts or fingerprints or DNA or anything that might serve to provide more information. And the chilling thing for me, Michelle, was when it was Miss Davis, the, 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 um, she's now retired, the, uh, the detective. She said, oh, I believed her. I believed her. Now, I'm not a cop, and I'm not an expert in these matters, but it seems to me that your feelings should not sway what is going on in your investigation. The idea that you just believe someone sets up such a trap of confirmation bias, such a trap of avoiding information that's going to re uh, reject your feelings or your instincts or whatever. I don't want police going on instincts. I really don't want them going on feelings. I want them going on empirical facts and objective data. So the fact that it's like, well, I believed her. Well, what about all this evidence that was against it? No, 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 I believed her. And it's like, this isn't, the law is not about your feelings. The law is about the facts, or at least it should be. Yes, it was appalling how many times both she and, and Detective Gregory spoke in, in, in that kind of language. I had a gut feeling. And um, from the very beginning of my interview with uh, Davis and, and, and Gregory, they were, they were very explicit in acknowledging that, yes, uh, even before they had a chance to sit down with uh, Daniel Holtzclaw, who they had never met before, it was the first and last time they, they, had, they had ever spoken with him in that two-hour in interrogation video, that they had already um, predetermined that he was guilty. There's nothing he could have said. There's no uh, exculpatory uh, evidence that could have been produced that would have convinced them that he was innocent of uh, the the charges that were leveled against him by Janie Liggins. That's what's so frightening to me, that this was rigged from the start. Well, and of course, if they had been able to get evidence uh, placing him uh, in her narrative in, in some physical way, then they wouldn't have needed to do or probably wouldn't have needed to do what they did next. Um, so perhaps you can help because the similar evidence seems very compelling to people. Right, and the detective even talks about it. No, if you have one person, that's one thing. But when you have thirteen people, that... but of course, the important thing uh, is that similar evidence, to, to my mind, and the same thing happened here with a Canadian broadcaster named Gian Gameshi. They said, "Oh, well, you know, these women all have the same." But if people have a chance to coordinate stories ahead of time, 
And if they're exposed to similar information through the media, if there are, say, pictures plastered up all over the neighborhood where the guy's face and, and what he's accused of, or if the detectives call up these people and say, well, we think X happened to you, then similar stories, similar descriptions uh, become far less compelling. And, and it's really, a, to me, it's poisoning the well to give people advanced information, to give people advanced cues of what you expect them to say, and then say, well, you know, there does seem to be some similarities. Yes, yes. And again here, the, the context and, and how this pileup and aggregation took place is very important. So June 17th, June 18th, the early morning is when uh, the Liggins stop happened. And then there was this ensuing investigation in which uh, detectives Davis and, and Gregory conjured up a profile of um, black women from Northeast Oklahoma who had uh, either drug use or prostitution, um, other uh, criminal histories. Where did they get this from? And, and why, why then? And, and why those circumstances? Well, August 9th uh, was the Ferguson shooting. Um, and just keep that in, in, in mind that as that conflagration like literally heated up and the city burned down. Uh, there was a, there was this sense of um, increasing pressure in 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 my um, assessment of of what was going on and how this investigation unfolded uh, to come up with um, somebody that that they could hang from a tree basically uh, and um, over the 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 course of 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 the summer, um, there was a need to put somebody out there publicly. Now, Janie Liggins had actually gone public um, uh, in that in that summer as 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 the investigation was unfolding, and it was after she went public that the detectives went out and actively sought um, women that. Uh, Daniel Holtzclaw had actually come into contact with. And, 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 and this is what's, I think, uh, so dangerous, Stefan. Um, one of the things that Brian Bates, the original defense uh, in, uh, investigator, um, points out is that the hardest lie to disprove is one that's inserted in a framework of truth. He says that the framework of truth here is that, you know, Daniel Holtzclaw never denied coming into contact with these women the way that the this uh, some mysterious list was compiled of uh, that was winnowed down um, into this you know this this uh, profile portfolio of, of women who fit the so-called profile was that they looked at his um, Varuna files I mean and you call when, when you call in um, you know you have to check on these women to see if they have wants or, or, or warrants and, uh, you know, the, there were thousands of people that he had come into contact with, even in the short three-year period that, that he had been surfing. And um, and then one of the things that didn't make sense about this so-called profile, of course, is that the, the woman who had first uh, become the public face, Janie Liggins, actually didn't fit this profile. <laughs> um, so it's rather, rather curious about how that all happened. But if, again, if you think of the social... Uh, climate in which this was occurring, then it starts to make sense. 
Yes, I mean the, the initial woman did not have a police record. However, uh, she was uh, she had taken a sleep aid before driving. Uh, she had admitted to taking at least one hit off a joint uh, before driving, and uh, I think she was driving uh, with uh, a, a license that had been revoked. So uh, true, true, no record, but but not exactly on the squeaky clean side of things. Right, right, that's right. Um, so what happened was, and and this is illuminated in in our series. Um, and Daniel in the Den on CRTV, is that um, there had been another woman who had brought a, a sexual assault allegation um, against the, an unidentified uh, police officer um, in May. Uh, so this is about a month uh, beforehand. And Detective Gregory, Rocky Gregory, um, had had been involved in trying to locate that woman she did not want to be located. Um, she wanted to be left alone. Um, and it, it turned out that the circumstances un, under which she eventually named Daniel as the assailant were all very strange. Um, she had been stopped because she was in a, a domestic um, incident with an ex-boyfriend. And she was incredibly unhappy that he was seeing someone else. She was a, a drug abuser, and um, she had named a, a different location um, for the alleged assault than the actual location where uh, Daniel had um, pulled her over. Uh, and then all of a sudden, this evolved, and the addresses all of a sudden transformed and, and matched up. And, and this was the sort of context in which uh, the de detectives, you know, sort of were able to procure these women and get their stories to fit. Um, in in the show, we mentioned one of these accusers, Carla Raines, and I listened to, you know, the entire audio interview. It was one of the interviews that was actually um, recorded. And seven times, and we have a little bell that goes ding, 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 ding. Every time uh, she denies that anything happened to her. And then once again, um, all of a sudden, the, the story is transformed and, 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 and she too um, becomes a you know, magical victim of, of, of uh, Daniel's predation. Well, and, and this path where, where the detectives come through his um, call-in history uh, and identify the, um, the black women who've had trouble with the law... They, they call them up and they say, well, you know, we've received a tip. This is all paraphrase, right? They re we've received a tip that you may have been sexually assaulted by a police officer. Uh, and in one case, the, the, the detective actually named Daniel directly. And, oh, he's a very bad guy with lots of victims. Uh, and um, this is, again, I'm no lawyer, but in court, I think that would be called <laughs> leading the witness. Uh, what you want to do, of course, if you're trying to solicit information, is to be as blank as possible. Did anything happen to you uh, over the past, you know, whatever period of time frame that, that you, you know, and then, then see if anything comes up. But if you say, well, here's what we think might have happened to you and, and uh, so on. And if you say he's a bad guy with lots of victims, then people might say, well, maybe if I can help put this bad guy away uh, by saying something back to the police want to hear, uh, maybe they would have that motive uh, to do so. Maybe they dislike cops as a result of arrest history. Could be any, or maybe they, uh, as is happening now, um, know about these civil suits that can uh, arise from these wherein you can get a significant payout. 
But uh, this is not, uh, if there was any profiling, it was not by Daniel, but it was by the detectives who were going through, as you said, the thousands of contacts he'd had and picking out particular people who then came in and a lot of them said nothing happened. A lot of them described the wrong kind of person. Uh, there was very little consistency prior to what was presented to the jury. Yes, correct. And you used the term poisoning the well, and that's uh, that's exactly right. We're, we're priming the the pump. Uh, and there, there are multiple times in the transcripts where, as you mentioned, uh, they told these women, well, we have a tip that, that you may be possibly a, a, a victim of a sexual assault of a law enforcement officer. Um, and then there were the cases in which, um, again, as you alluded to, and as I've reported on since I started this, that, that number a number of these uh, so-called victims described their assailant as quote, a short black man. Um, there was a woman named uh, Sherry Ellis, and, and that is the woman for whom um, Daniel was convicted of on the charges of, and it's the longest amount of time, 62 years, for a woman who described her assailant as a short black man. She's 5'11", and she was very addled in, in much of, of her interview with Kim Davis, but the one thing she was absolutely certain about was that this was a man who came to hear on her nose. Um, and there were a number of other accusers who also described uh, their assailant as quote unquote dark skinned uh, when Daniel is very light skinned, 6'1", around um, 240 pounds. Uh, and none of this mattered in the end. None of it mattered because the 13 women who uh, ended up as part of the prosecution's case were treated in the aggregate. And in Daniel's appeal that was filed on February 1st, this was one of the most important uh, propositions in, in the appeal, that um, it was the aggregation um, that, you know, helped lead to 263 years um, in, in prison was, you know, clearly unconstitutional in, in the way that uh, the jury considered them as a whole rather than assessing the the sufficiency of the evidence on each individual case and there's no way unless they had been all tied together um, that he would be behind bars now and as far as i remember michelle correct me anytime i go astray but um the jury was not made aware that seven other individuals claimed that uh daniel had sexually assaulted them including one man but their allegations were dismissed as, as impossible or absurd because, uh, for instance, they said he assaulted me on such and such a time when Daniel wasn't even at work at that time and so on. Yes. And um, or, or they recanted when they were sort of presented with the evidence that what they said didn't add up. Uh, in fact, one of these uh, uh, accusers uh, actually admitted, finally admitted uh, in a videotaped interview that she'd made the whole thing uh, up to, to help the case. And she was actually convicted of falsely reporting a crime. So – if you if you look at these women who who are the accusers and say ah oh, well you know there's a you know similar statements and a preponderance of evidence but if you don't know that seven other people came forward who were directly found to have falsified things or or have recanted that seems to me kind of important information to not bring to the jury i assume that the defense wanted to bring it and were disallowed uh, but that seems quite important yes and then on top of that um the defense team knew that there were i believe upwards of 30 women that the detectives 
had interviewed whatever list they had they had called um, who said that absolutely nothing happened in their interaction with Daniel and and you just think about the you know alternative scenario that might have uh, transpired in a in a, a truly free and, and fair trial where all 30 of those women had been you know put on the stand to say nothing happened nothing happened nothing happened nothing happened um uh Shanice Barksdale was the one uh you know would be accuser who was convicted of uh, of perjury um, but a number of these women were just, and, and the one man were were simply allowed to walk. <laughs> that 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 to me is is troubling in and of itself. But it, you know, it tells you that these that these detectives knew, um, just like uh, Kim Davis had told the Oklahoman that these women lie all the time. But uh, I suppose you know, in in the world of of social justice agitators, that lies in in the service of of their agenda are noble lies. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's back to a platonic distinction. And the big challenge, of course, which we know in situations of uh, allegations of sexual abuse or assault or rape, is that if there is direct physical evidence, you know, then yeah, sure, you know, I mean, if if the person's found guilty, and it's, it's clear from physical evidence what occurred, then yeah, lock them up, throw away the key. But the challenge, of course, is in the he said, she said stuff, where there's no direct physical evidence, but there are allegations. Now, to me, the he said, she said stuff, I don't know how it can ever rise to the um, uh, to the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, 95% or more. But if you are an accuser and you're relying simply on the he said, she said stuff, the moment that you are proven to have lied about something, to me, again, I don't run the court system, I don't run the legal system, but to me, if it's all based upon the veracity or the integrity of your word, the moment that you're found to have lied about something important, not just a misremembering and so on, but a, a direct lie, I don't see how it can continue. Um, if you've been proven to lie and everything relies upon the truth of what you're saying, how, how can it move forward? That's sort of my standard, but it doesn't seem to have applied here. No, and and there were so many cases in in which these accusers impeached themselves on the on the stand, um, but I think it shows you the the pressure that this jury was under that they literally split the baby, and that is the term that uh, even Detective Gregory used in my interview with him, and sort of just shrugged his shoulders because there were thirty six charges of of all manners of of sexual assault. Um, that were leveled against Daniel. And exactly half of them were accepted by the jury and half were thrown out. And there was very little reason or logic or rationality in how they picked and and chose uh, which of these accusers' stories to believe or or not. Um, In the case of Shardarian Hill, um, she was the one that we showed in in, in um, Daniel in the Den in our in our series, who at the very end of of her interview with Detective Gregory said, "Well, even if he didn't rape anyone, that something bad should still happen to him because he shouldn't be contacting uh, these accusers." As Daniel had contacted her afterwards to follow up and see how she was doing, she was somebody who had chewed on glass vials of PCP uh, during um, a a stop where um, he had he and a a partner had checked on on her in 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 some stranger's truck and then rushed her to the hospital because she saved her life potentially he saved her life potentially she could have overdosed ingesting that much yes and and this is how 
she paid him back by absurdly accusing him of somehow uh, sexually assaulting her in a busy ER while she was handcuffed uh, to the rail of her hospital bed. And in that case, at least, the jury realized it was so freaking ridiculous, even they, under the gun of the social justice mob, who was outside the courtroom screaming, give him life, give him life, as they were deliberating, uh, refused to believe that story. Guess what? To this day, Detectives Davis and Detective Gregory believe this lying woman. Now, the GPS record in Holtzclaw's car um, deny some of the um, geography of the allegation. Now, of course, geography is not proof. You can be someplace and not committing a crime, apparently, although not in this case, apparently. But there are uh, indications where there's a matchup between what the accusers uh, have said uh, and um, what the GPS shows in one uh, instance where um, he was allegedly he allegedly broke into someone's house without permission, woke the woman's uh, boyfriend uh, and told him to go outside and so on. Uh, and the GPS does seem to match up with some uh, of the allegations. I wonder if we can help people untangle that challenge. Yes. So um, the mere fact that uh, GPS or AVL, as they call it in Oklahoma law enforcement, um, matches up with uh, you know, a, a, a story of, of sexual assault. In, in a lot of ways, I mean, you have to, you, you have to assess the, the accuracy of the GPS and AVL in the first place. Um, it, there are up, up, it, it could be a accuracy of, of, up, of up to 1200 feet. Um, and then there's a way in which it pings uh, to show you, you know, when the car is moving or when it has stopped, and and I think what I what I'd said earlier about what Brian Bates says about um, lies inserted into frameworks of of truth uh, holds here as well, because um, GPS data doesn't tell you that a sexual assault happened, um, and so. You know, in cases where it, it clearly didn't match up, sometimes the, the, the jury um, exonerated Dan Daniel on those charges. But there, there are some cases where it matched the accuser, and even in those cases, they didn't believe um, the accuser. So um, I think you're referring to, I mean, there's so many of them, I, I want to make sure that I'm absolutely accurate, but I think you're referring to the Tabitha Barnes um, uh, example. Um, and I think in that case, what had happened was uh, there was some stranger outside the house and um, he had questioned the stranger, then come back in uh, to talk to her. And, um, and, and, and she was mad for some reason. And I think in the end that, 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 that was an example of what detective Davis had talked about with regard to retaliation um, in which she conjured up um, a sexual assault in, in that case. There is um, a sort of shocking repetition to the accusations and the lack of physical evidence. So one of the accusers, uh, a known drug abuser and, and prostitute, said that, uh, well, Daniel, you know, took her to her house, uh, sexually assaulted her in her bedroom on the chair and later on the bed for about 10 minutes. And then um, forensics examination, they looked at the chair, uh, no DNA from, from Holtzclaw. There was DNA from two unknown Males, which again shows that uh, if there's activity or or contact, that you will see DNA. And again, this this kind of stuff is is a real challenge to square with the with what is said. But let's go to 
what I think one of the jurors uh, who was interviewed later uh, said was the most damning uh, piece of evidence, the, um, the tiny scrap of uh, DNA from the 17-year-old woman or girl that was found uh, on his uh, zipper. I wonder if you could help people uh, understand the relevance and the power of that in the eyes of the jury. Yeah, um, I do want to go to the to the case that you had mentioned before, because that is a woman named Rosetta Great. And what's striking about that was she told this incredibly vivid tale of how she had been, um, I believe, both vaginally and orally um, assaulted and that she had had the wherewithal to um, wipe herself and wipe the the railing of the bed and throw a a towel or a piece of cloth that uh, was going to have her DNA and his DNA all over it and put it in a, a closet. Well, this prompted the police department to call the gang unit, the same gang unit that uh, Daniel had been a part of, uh, to go and, 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 you know, take this huge, you know, SWAT-like police force to break down the door to find um, all of this uh, supposedly uh, damning DNA evidence that was going to hang Daniel. They found nothing. Nothing. And again, what's striking with that comparison, too, is this is how they handled all of that. And yet these same detectives didn't bother to go to Daniel's own apartment, get his other uniforms, get the get the uh, un- his other underwear that was was in the laundry, um, which hadn't been washed, which they mistakenly believed had. Even if it had been washed, it still might have DNA on it. It's very persistent. Um but that juxtaposition just is very strange in, in and of itself. So let's go to the, the actual so-called smoking gun DNA evidence. Um, on June 17th and 18th, um, there were not just Janie Liggins, but there were two other women that eventually became part of the case and um, accused Daniel of uh, sexual assault. And one of them was a 17-year-old girl who was very troubled um, had a, a criminal history and had been called in by her mother who uh, accused her of assaulting her that day. So Daniel had actually come into contact uh, with this 17-year-old twice. Um, and one of those times, she was with um, an alleged pimp and a woman who presumably was um, involved in prostitution of some kind. And there was uh, some sort of conflict or um, fight um, among them. And uh, Daniel took the 17-year-old to her house, her mother's house, but she um, apparently didn't have any ID on her. He didn't know for sure that it was her house, so he, they, they were on the porch together. And um, eventually uh, a story was developed uh, that this woman uh, had been vaginally raped um, on the porch um, in daylight by Daniel. And uh, the Oklahoma City Crime Lab did testing on Daniel's uniform pants. And a a minuscule amount of what was characterized as epithelial um, DNA, skin cell DNA, was detected um, over the course of swabbing it uh, on the inside and the outside of the zipper. And there were four samples, um, 17Q1, Q2, Q3, and Q4, um, in which the teenager's uh, DNA DNA was identified. 
And one of the things that's, I think, extremely important that did not get uh, plumbed during the trial was the amount of DNA, the quantity. Um, in the appeal documents that were filed on February 1st, this was finally illuminated, that there was more DNA found in one of the uh, swabs on the door handle of uh, Daniel Holtzclaw's patrol car than there was in the amount of, of DNA that was uh, eventually detected um, on his pants. And, and I want to sort of remind people of this because DNA is considered to be a smoking gun. Um, I think I think a lot of work has been done showing the um, unreliability of eyewitness accounts uh, in, in trials. But DNA is considered to be this, you know, it's like having a video camera and a full confession. But to my mind, if this rape had occurred, there would be more than, what was it, like a millionth of a gram or some, like some completely infinitesimally small amount. If uh, the rape had, been occur had occurred with pants on, then there would, to me, be quite a lot uh, of DNA and staining and so on. But if it got transferred from some other way, e even if there'd been some rape and then he touched his, his uh, zipper and that's how it got transferred, that indicates that it could be a transfer that has nothing to do with a sexual assault. So Daniel had talked about going through her purse and so on, which, you know, she's got makeup and she's got cell phone thing she's touched, then of course uh, her DNA can go to his hands. Um, then he goes to the bathroom, unzips himself, and then it transfers that way. Uh, so it seems like a, a smoking gun, but um, this kind of casual transfer of DNA uh, is uh, shockingly common. You know, I sort of feel like you, you, put, you put that kind of light on yourself and you, you don't even know. You, you touch a coin, you touch uh, someone else's cell phone, you pat them on the back. You, you don't know where this stuff can come from. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we shed tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of skin cells every single day. And it was the failure on the part of the crime lab analyst, Elaine Taylor, the prosecutor um, who uh, direct examined her, Galen Giger, and unfortunately, the failure, the abject failure of Daniel's own defense attorney, Scott Adams, that that really doomed Daniel. I mean, there was so much scientific um, misinterpretation, so many uh, uh, scientific omissions in explaining not only the phenomenon of trace or transfer touch uh, DNA, but also the the context in which it was tested. Um, I interviewed for my CRTV show, uh, Dan Crane, who's a leading forensic um, expert, and he's uh, been involved in many of these high-profile cases where transfer DNA um, has been involved. He's at Wright State University. Um, and he talked about the, the absolute need for a control, substrate controls, none of which was done on these pants to uh, test other areas for the possibility that, in fact, there was a completely uh, non-nefarious, uh, innocuous explanation um, for uh, the presence of the DNA in that area. And I then mean, if, the if they'd found it in his pocket, say, uh, on exactly. the inside of his pocket or, or, you know, his back pocket or something, then that would indicate, to me at least, uh, a, another explanation uh, other than sexual assault as to the transfer of the DNA. But if they only test one spot, then it seems to me Again, that's the confirmation bias. Aha! We found what we want. Now, if we keep testing, we might undermine things. So they're not after the truth, in my opinion, in that situation. That's right. And I um, asked Detective Davis directly about this. Well, why weren't other parts of the pants tested? And she, she just blinked at me and said, why? <laughs> it's, 
it would be funny if it wasn't so freaking chilling and and if a, an innocent man weren't behind bars for 263 years you know it, it's not what these these uh people know that's so frightening it's what they don't know they don't know uh and so the the what's important in the the filings from last week is it's not only the the appeal that raised insufficient counsel, prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, Galen Giger flat out asserted, arguing facts not in evidence, that the DNA came from vaginal fluid when no serological tests were done, when no fluorescing of the pants were done to to uh, you know even raise the possibility that it was vaginal. He just outright asserted that vaginal fluid was absorbed in the pants when Elaine Taylor, the crime lab analyst said herself that the only thing she used to assess that was a eh, just a, a, a ambient bright light that she had in 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 her office no 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 alternative light source that's accepted by um any you know self-respecting forensic experts um and and that she herself had admitted under the stand on the stand that yes it's possible that it could have been um, transfer DNA. So um, there's an application for a Sixth Amendment evidentiary hearing uh, where an affidavit by another well-respected DNA expert, Michael Spence, um, was filed, and we'll have to see if that hearing is granted. But he goes into even much greater detail about the ways in, in which um, Elaine Taylor and, and Galen Giger and, like I said, Scott Adams failed to illuminate to the jury that there was unknown male DNA detected in these samples. And the reason that that's important is twofold, Stefan. One, uh, because the prosecution was operating on this theory that since there was no male DNA, the only way the DNA could have gotten there was uh, from this uh, vaginal rape. Well, it's not true, and and the bench notes and the notes and the reports that uh, Elaine Taylor made at the time that she uh, made her test assessments show that, and yet she did not testify to that explicitly at trial. And the second reason um, it, it's important is because if it's not Daniel's DNA, whose is it? And again, that underscores, uh, you know, the the very likely. Um, most reasonable possibility that this was transfer DNA, completely innocent transfer of DNA. Well, you know, and, and being on the jury, I can understand that if uh, secretions from the inner wall of the vagina end up on the inside of the zipper of a guy, it's kind of tough. It's kind of tough to sort of say that there's an innocent uh, explanation for that. Uh, because even if it wasn't rape, he would have to have, even if it was his fingers and so on, then he would have had to have his fingers in her vagina or something. But, and this is the part that, that to me is, is really, really shocking, and, and there's so much about this that is shocking, is that in his concluding statements, the prosecutor says, yes, it's vaginal DNA. It's vaginal DNA. Now, in Oklahoma, of course, the prosecutor goes last. There's no chance to rebut that lasting impression uh, in the minds of the jurors. But uh, the prosecutor himself, later when interviewed, said, well, there's no test that can really confirm that. And, and now, there are a few tests. They're usually not uh, used in, in courtrooms. But he himself said, isn't this not a confession that misrepresented a crucial piece of evidence to a jury? And this was the piece of evidence that was considered the smoking gun. Everything else was circumstantial. Everything else was he said, she said. There was, this was the only direct piece of physical evidence uh, that tied him to a rape. I misrepresented the origin of it to the audience, to, sorry, to the, uh, to the jury. Later, when asked about it, I said, well, there was, there was no way we could know. 
I, I, I mean, how, how is this? Uh, I mean, this is astonishing. It's galling, and the context in which he admitted that there were there were where he had he asserted that there were there were no tests for this, even though he had asserted uh, in his closing statement that uh, it came from vaginal fluid. In that context, he accused Daniel's team of lying. Uh, you know, here all of these people have profiled Daniel as some sort of sociopath when they're the ones that exhibit the most sociopathic uh, behavior in, in all of this over over the course of this two-year nightmare. Um, the the section in the appeal, which of course none of the Oklahoma media has even bothered um, to report to Oklahoma citizens, that goes through all of Galen Gigger, the the uh, the assistant district attorney who tried this case. Um, all of the examples of prosecutorial misconduct would 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 make your the hair on the ends of your your arms just stand up that he got away with so much of it. But again, you know, there was there was this was a cauldron of incompetence, political correctness, uh, rape culture, feminism, uh, the the racial demagoguery that was involved, uh, and then I think the narcissism of uh, the state, uh, of the government in, in this case, um, that, that, that really did Daniel in. Um, and again, I just want to talk about that, that, uh, social justice climate in which he was, um, convicted because somehow the city of Oklahoma granted a demonstration permit for these Black Lives Matter types and these feminists to be standing outside the jury and in, 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 in the courtroom in earshot of their deliberations and, and during trial. Uh, and in the appeal, the, 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 public, the public defender somewhat absolved the state saying, well, they couldn't control this. They couldn't have helped it. Actually, they could have. Yeah. <laughs> it's a courtroom. I, I think the state has some jurisdiction over who's uh, just, just out front. And this, to me, is, is what I want people to get from this. I mean, and the, the injustice that potentially was done against Daniel is, is horrifying enough. But this, is, this could be anyone. You know, there's that old saying there, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Anyone can accuse you of anything. They can call up, you know, some old girlfriend, some old boyfriend can call up the cops and say, you did something terrible to me years ago. And if the cops believe that person, then they may start going down a road of, of trying to gather things and, and ignoring certain things and focusing on certain things. There could be confirmation bias. You don't know when this lasers can land on, on your forehead. And this is why this cause is more than just an individual cause. I mean, this is one which has floated to the surface of, the, uh, of our consciousness and, and of the media and, and of your show and so on. Just think of the many, many cases, uncountable number of cases, which haven't risen to this kind of prominence where the same methodology may have occurred. Think of the history of this police department, where they may have gone uh, in, in this direction. Uh, this is a kind of chilling situation that um, is not just some other guy in some other place. Could be your son, could be your daughter, could be your mother, could be your father, could be you. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's why I'm committed to following this case all the way through. It's not just my own, you know, sort of personal um, attachment that uh, that has grown to Daniel. I've visited him in, in prison now several times and gotten to know his family. It, it's about more than that. I mean, I have selfish reasons. I have a son. He's 13 years old. He sees 
what's going on. And uh, the, the idea that, that he might be falsely accused in such a manner uh, frightens me to no end. I mean, it, this case keeps me up not only because of, um, because of my fears and my concerns um, as a mother, um, as a human being, and certainly as a journalist, um, you know, we, we, we've barely touched on the, the, uh, the media malpractice here. But, uh, you know, in the context of all, all, all of this, uh, you know, recent discussion of fake news, it's not just when they fake the news, it's when they w won't report the truth. It's the whitewash, it's the cover-up, it's the conspiracy of silence that I can't tolerate. Stefan, it's a, it, it is a privilege to be able to work in journalism as long as I have for, for, for a quarter century. But the idea that, that these so many of these social justice warriors who masquerade as reporters look down their noses at people like you and me who are able to operate in a new media environment and introduce facts that they would rather cover up because it doesn't uh, fit their own narrative. I, I had the police department um, being quoted by Oklahoma media that what I was doing wasn't journalism because it was a business project and I was biased and I, my questions to the detectives were quote-unquote aggressive. You know, as I told people when I um, toured for CRTV in Oklahoma, it's not the tone of my questions. It's not the source of the questions. It was the questions themselves. Uh, and, you know, the, why bother working in the journalism business if you won't ask questions that nobody else will? Well, this is the thing, too. I mean, uh, people who can't answer the questions always attack on tone. That's almost a, a given these days. But um, mm -hmm. in, in preparing for our conversation today, Michelle, I mean, I, I read a, a wide variety of, of different perspectives on it. And it really is, you know, like this old Japanese story of Rashomon, what happened in the woods, you know, and everyone has their particular description of what happened. And it seems to me like we're increasingly living in these different worlds. Uh, in my particular opinion, there's enough here that, that there should be a re-examination of everything that happened. But there are people, and I, you know, do I have any certainty of conclusions? No, I would like to come to some more certainty of conclusions, which is why I think this needs to be re-examined. But in reading the, the mainstream media views of this kind of stuff, uh, it is such a different world from what is going on on the other side. And I'm sort of concerned just about the culture and, and the country and the civilization as a whole, that if we end up inhabiting these different perspectives without, uh, you know, truth and reason and evidence to um, reconcile us to each other's viewpoints, I mean, how, how can the country, how can the society, how can the culture even stay together when people are so certain of something and people are so certain of the opposite and there doesn't seem to be any way to bring these two uh, perspectives together, which is, of course, what the whole point of, you know, evidence and reason and argumentation is supposed to achieve, is to build these bridges between these different perspectives. Yes, it's alarming. It's alarming when you think about how, how a society can have a functioning criminal justice system when um, you can't trust individuals to assess facts and evidence in a rational manner, when you cannot conduct uh, a fair trial uh, in the context of these social justice mobs that are activated, you know, at the snap uh, of a finger. And um, I think this particular case is so extreme because it's a combination of race, gender, 
law enforcement. And, and class as well, I would say. And, and, and class as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and all that just created a, a, a perfect storm. So the question now, you know, as Daniel heads towards uh, his appeal, winding through its way through the courses, can we trust judges in the system to do the right thing? And, of course, we've had a larger um, context of that um, with the Supreme Court uh, nomination going on. Uh, well, and here. the Ninth Circuit Court review of uh, Trump's executive ni- order and uh, yes. so on, yeah. Yes. And and Oklahoma, unfortunately, um, has a history of, of, of its Court of Criminal a- a- Appeals not doing the, the right thing based on law. Um, I, I read a an incredible book that I think has a lot of resonance for for Daniel's case called The Innocent Man by John Grisham. Now, of course, mm. he came in at the very end of, of, of a process where two men were exonerated, um, and there wasn't the same kind of, of, of racial aspect to it. But you have to think about the culture here, and, and, and it's interesting you mentioned class as well, um, but just sort of... Um, Regionally, uh, you know, for, from a parochial standpoint where you've got, you know, a very chummy legal system of both prosecutors and criminal defense attorneys and judges who all went to the same two or three uh, law schools, uh, the cronyism that's involved there. And so on top of everything else, you've got this stacked uh, judicial and, and legal deck that the wrongfully accused and, and Daniel in particular um, have to battle against. So I want to just make a, like a tiny little closing statement then I'll give you um, the, the, the forum to, to talk about why this is important, why people should get involved and we'll put links to, to information below. But there's an old argument, um, it goes back hundreds of years, but it was very forcefully expressed in A Man for All Seasons, which is the idea that um, if you're on the right side of the mob, you think the mob is a great thing. You know, when, when they're pursuing the agenda that you want, then you think, well, the mob is, is just and the mob is right and, and so on. But just remember that every power that you grant to the mob can be turned against you should the mob change direction. And we know from history, the mob always changes direction. So the people who are the social justice warriors that are chanting, yelling, screaming, they know for sure this guy is guilty, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And there are vague threats about uh, riots and so on if he's not convicted. Okay, so maybe you get your way this time. But if you put into your legal system the precedence that the mob controls the outcome or the mob strongly influences the outcome or people are going to make calculations of social utility and defense rather than the pursuit of truth and justice, someone else at some point is going to get that power away from you and then it's going to be pointed at you. And then how will you feel about your participation in creating that weapon that is now trained upon you and those you love? I couldn't put it any better than that. And that explains why I'm investing so much of my time and energy in this case. As I said, it's for me, a lot of it is it is is about Daniel specifically. Um, but I believe that if and when, and I do believe it's when he is exonerated, that it will be a victory not only for him individually and his family, but it will be a victory for truth and righteousness and logic and fairness and our constitution. His fifth, sixth. 8th and 14th Amendment rights were so excessively violated uh, that if this is allowed to stand, it bodes very ill for every man 
every law enforcement officer, every innocent law-abiding person just minding his or her own business because it has completely upended uh, the idea of um, reasonable doubt um, and the standards and proof by which we're supposed to find people uh, guilty or not guilty in America. Um, it is also a case that not that, that not, not not only has implications and consequences for some of the issues that we care most about with regard to social justice and mobs and uh, racial demagoguery and poison. But for anybody who works in forensic science and who cares about the integrity of, uh, of his or her profession, um, the idea that uh, the, you know, wholesale junk science that was used uh, to convict Daniel, the idea that, that this would be allowed in a, a court of law um, also Im Im impinges on, you know, the, the, the credibility of forensic, forensic science. And, and, and the thing is that, that experts in this field know that there's a Grand Canyon-sized gap between public perception, public knowledge, um, and knowledge, unfortunately, or, or lack thereof on the part of um, so many prosecutors and police detectives and, and crime lab staffers themselves versus where the science actually is, that gap needs to close. It needs to shrink. It needs to disappear. Um, if there's, if there's, if there's to, to be any, you know, sense of rationality um, in the criminal justice system, you know, as, as those smoking guns are fired more and more often in the system. So um, I'm going to keep following the case for CRTV as well as use every social media platform that I have um, to spread word about um, what's going on with this case. The appeal will, in the Court of Criminal Appeals in Oklahoma, may take up to a year, year and a half, maybe two years um, before we um, know whether there's going to be a retrial. And if there's not, um, then Daniel and his family are going to have to keep fighting. And and he's not going to have a public defender um, available to him if he goes on to the step of post-conviction relief. Um, that means that, you know, if people want to put their monies where their mouths are um, with regard to fighting back against social justice mobs, they can do so by supporting this family. Um, and his sister Jenny has a website, um, Free uh, Daniel Holtzclaw, uh, dot com and Brian Bates is continuing to uh, release and disclose um, as much information as possible going forward. I mean, social media is so important now. Um, I, I think that there's a political or ideological or, or media jujitsu that can happen because the same forces that led to um, you know the mob hanging him can also be turned around and used in his favor. And you know the idea of having all of your, you know, your listeners and, and viewers being able to crowdsource this case um, would be an incredible thing. Yeah, I mean, the only way we're going to join together um, in the divisions of ethnicity and, and gender and, and class and so on is if we all agree to meet in the great antechamber of facts and reason and evidence. And that, I think, is what we are in pursuit of here. 
Thanks so much for taking the time uh, today to to step people through this very, very important situation in America. Please want to remind people, go to michellemalkin.com and crtv.com. Uh, Michelle is on there with uh, Mark Stein uh, and uh, Mark Levin and, and others uh, who produce some, some wonderful uh, thought-provoking material. I hope we can get you back on uh, as the H-1B visa fight heats up. Uh, I'm sure we'll be having more to talk about with that. Uh, Michelle, a great pleasure to talk today. Thank you for all of the work that you do and uh, have yourself a great day. You too. Thank you so much, Stefan.